0: Welcome to New Books in the American South. I'm your host, Brandon Jett. On today's podcast, I'm speaking with Dr. David Silkinet, a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh. His research focuses on the social and cultural history of the American South during the 19th century, with particular attention to the Civil War, race, and slavery. He has published four books, including Raising the White Flag, How Surrender Defined the American Civil War, which was a finalist for the Gilder Lerman Lincoln Prize. Today, we're talking about his most recent book, Scars on the Land, an Environmental History of Slavery in the American South published by Oxford University Press in 2022. This book is the first comprehensive history of American slavery to examine how the environment fundamentally formed enslaved people's lives and how slavery remade the Southern landscape. Over two centuries, from the establishment of slavery in the Chesapeake to the Civil War, one simple calculation had profound consequences. Rather than measuring productivity based on outputs per acre, southern planters sought to maximize how much labor they could extract extract from their enslaved workforce. They saw the landscape as disposable, relocating to more fertile prospects once they had leached the soils and cut down the forests. On the leading edge of the frontier, slavery laid waste to fragile ecosystems, draining swamps, clearing forests, to plant crops, and fuel steamships, and introducing devastating invasive species. On its trailing edge, slavery left eroded hillsides, rivers clogged with sterile soil, and the extinction of native species. On that really positive note, uh, I'd like to welcome welcome Dr. David Silkanet uh, to New Books in the American South.
1: Uh, Really happy to be here, Brendan.
0: First and foremost, congratulations on the book. Um, I I don't read too many environmental histories, uh, but for some reason, this one really uh, drew me in, and I was really excited that you agreed to come on the podcast uh, to explore this really intriguing but um, surprisingly understudied topic.
1: Uh, Well, thank you. I mean, I I wrote it in part, not necessarily with with just environmental historians in mind, but with historians of the American South, people who are interested in the history of, of slavery, but also just people who have broad interests in, in how the South ended up the way that it has. Uh, that's sort of who I envisioned as the audience. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad it caught your interest.
0: Well, you've certainly uh, succeeded there. And I, I will throw my wife under the bus. I think I've done this once or twice on, <laughs> on this show so far. She hasn't read my book, which is fine. She's heard me talk about it enough. My wife uh, has read But there's read a couple books. of books I get, and she, she saw this and was like, that's a book I want to read based on the title. Um, so I think you are doing a really great job of reaching those audiences. Uh, but there's something about this book that I also found really interesting in terms of who, who you are and what you've done in the past. Um, you've, you've researched and written about Southern history quite extensively. Um, You've written about things like suicide, divorce, and debt in the Civil War era, um, Civil War refugees, and as I mentioned in the introduction, how surrender defined the Civil War. Um, This seems like a bit of a departure, so I just was hoping you could explain to us a little bit uh, about how you became interested in the environmental history of slavery uh, in the American South.
1: Uh, So that's that's a good question. Um, So I am, by training, I guess, a sort of generic Southern historian. I've done, you know, uh, my work... Before this project has has dabbled in a number of different methodologies. I've done some social history, cultural history, a little bit of legal and economic history, some military history, and obviously now uh, going into to environmental history. Uh, and that's sort of part of a challenge I sort of set myself when I write start new projects. I want to do something that that pushes me to to think in in new ways. Sure. Um, and You know, coming to this project, I knew that the scholarship on the the slavery pretty well, you know, I taught that slavery had always been at the the core of, of, of the previous things I've done, but, you know, writing environmental history required me first to come up to speed with an entirely new field and a new approach to doing history. Uh, right. But it also caused me to then sort of read sources that I had read many times before, but read them in new ways to look for new things. Uh, and, and, you know, reading f- fugitive slave narratives, for instance, through an environmental lens caused all kinds mm-hmm. of things to pop out that I hadn't seen before. You know, in terms of of an inspiration for, for why I came to this book, I... I I've been thinking about this a lot because often I don't know what motivates me to do things <laughs> until after I've done them. Um, you know, I think Hurricane Katrina, I think, was a big influence. Uh, sure. you know, thinking, looking at the sort of devastation uh, of Louisiana uh, and the ways in which the environment and race there intersected w- was quite powerful to me, um, and and it caused me to really think about these questions of environmental justice, the ways in which, you know, the, the populations, in, especially in the south, that, that suffer the most from uh, environmental destruction and environmental challenges and environmental catastrophes,
2: mm-hmm. are
1: very often people of color. Uh, and to then sort of think through that historically, you know, and in the years that I was researching and writing "Scars on the Land," it was very much at the height of the the Black Lives Matter movement, the the protests around the country, uh, but also with sort of growing recognition that the global environmental crisis is the great challenge that humanity has to face right now. And seeing those two items in the headlines for the past five years is really... Caused me to ask, you know, questions about about how those are related and how yeah. how we can make sense of the history of of race and slavery on the one hand, and the environment on the other.
0: Absolutely. Well, I think you've done a really really nice job of bringing those two elements together um, in a really really engaging way. And you touched on this a little bit, um, but I'm hoping maybe you can elaborate. Um, you know, this is a pretty broad study. Um, hmm. You're not focusing on one state, um, but instead the South more broadly how did you go about researching the book um, was it just simply going back through sources that you had already considered um, but looking at them through a different lens or, or or did you have to dig into new archives what what really was most useful um, for you
1: so i mean one of the things I wanted to do very much with this project was to privilege the the voices of of the enslaved and formerly enslaved so you know, that was sort of the first set of sources I, I looked to you know and i read through as many of the fugitive slave uh, narratives as I could, the WPA interviews from the 1930s, other Mm -hmm. kinds of accounts by uh, enslaved people, you know, and try to look at them uh, through an environmental lens. And so there's, there's Mm -hmm. that sort of the main sources I use for this. Um, I also read through the writings of of enslavers, Mm -hmm. some of whom are, very environmentally astute most of them are not but some of them (laughs) were um you know uh, edmund ruffin for all of his many problems was Mm -hmm. a a very keen observer of the environment thomas jefferson similarly thought and wrote a lot about uh, the, the environment around monticello but also more broadly and you know i i found that those to be particularly useful Uh, And the third set of sources that turned out to be just very important for me uh, were were accounts by scientists and Mm -hmm. naturalists who are visiting the American South, and some of them have thoughts about slavery, and some of them, or at least before they arrive there, some of them don't. Uh, But but they are often very keen observers, both of the uh, environment, obviously, because that's their training, but also of Uh, of the ways in which that environment is shaping the lives of the people who are enslaved Um, and sometimes they're very sympathetic and sometimes they're not but i found that you know that they had that particular eye for for describing landscape for describing you know even if if they're geologists they're primarily interested in going looking at rocks but they are Mm -hmm. also describing the other things they're seeing around them and i found those kinds of sources people who are visiting the South from from the North, but from Europe, uh, to be really very, very valuable.
0: Wow. Yeah. You know, one name kind of building on this source conversation uh, that popped up again and again. So anybody Mm. who reads the book is going to notice this name, uh, Charles Ball. He is referenced repeatedly. He's um, kind of the main
1: character if there is one. Um,
0: Yeah, in a lot of ways. And so I was hoping maybe we could just learn a little bit more about who Charles Ball was and why he played such an important role in the book.
1: Yeah. So Charles Ball uh, is the author of a, a really important fugitive slave narrative. It's published in the, the rich first in the, the 1830s. So it's a little bit before Frederick Douglass and, and they're the other ones people may be familiar with. Yeah. Uh, it's often neglected. I don't you know, it's, it doesn't get taught very often, I think partially because it's very long. Um, people tend to gravitate towards teaching Frederick Douglass or
0: right, it's narrow or,
1: or Solomon Northup or or, or Jacobs because they're 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 short and teachable and um, Charles Ball is not. But <laughs> uh, I have taught it actually. One of the things one of the things that, that happened as I was sort of in the lead up to writing this book is I assigned that to a class I teach. Uh, here on the history of, of antebellum slavery, and I had my students, since it was so long, sort of read a couple of chapters every week in addition to other things we were doing. Um, and what makes his narrative interesting is first that he was enslaved in a variety of different locations, so he's mm-hmm. he he's born in the Chesapeake, uh, but then he sold. Uh, to, uh, to the lower South. So he spends time in South Carolina on a rice plantation. He's in Georgia. He spends some time um, working on in a, in a fishery uh, on a river. Um, and so he has a number of different experiences in slavery. And he's a very keen observer of, of that landscape. So, so he, he has a very, you know, he has a naturalist's eye you know, there's one mm-hmm. point that, you know early in his narrative where he's describing traveling through Virginia. He's being sold. He's just been sold for the first time from from uh, the Chesapeake down down into uh, South Carolina, I think. And he's passing through what had been a century or earlier, the, the heartland of, of the tobacco industry. Mm-hmm. And what he describes is sort of the devastation that. Intensive tobacco cultivation had had upon the land and he draws both implicit and explicit connections between the brutality of slavery On on people who are enslaved and the brutality of this institution upon the land and the land reflected that um, That that violence and mm-hmm. you know, he describes this or nothing grows there and nobody can, can live in this region because it is it has been brutalized by by violence. Um, he's got a dog and the dog is very important to him. And there's a whole section of the book about enslaved people's relationships with dogs. Um, mm-hmm. and so I just he was a very he was probably the, you know, in terms of the sources that I was using, he was the one that was just a real gold mine for different kinds of experiences and somebody who could, you know, draw these connections that I wanted to make between you know the lives of the enslaved and, and what was going on with the landscape.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I thought one of the more compelling parts of the book was when, when you emphasize those connections, right? The people who treat other human beings so violently, right? Violence undergirded all of the slave South, um, and they're doing the exact same thing to the environment that they yeah. are, are kind of reaping.
1: Well, um, once you tell somebody that, that they, they have the authority over another human being, that they own them, that they can beat them, that they can sell their children, that they can sexually assault them, that they have that kind mm-hmm. of dominion over people. I mean, in some ways, it shouldn't come as a surprise that those same people have you know, a relationship to, to land and to other kinds of property that is, that is exploitive and, and mm-hmm. uh, violent.
0: Yeah. I mean, even today, so I live in Southwest Florida and this is kind of an aside, but, Hmm. um, I'm just struck by how little people seem to respect nature and the environment. It seems like something that is just there to be conquered, tamed, and we can always, um, overcome it. Um, Hmm. we just had that hurricane hit not that long ago and I was just struck by the number of people who didn't, um, heed the warnings that, that, you know, this massive storm surge is coming. And I know there are problems and some people can't get away. Um, but so many people just thought, well, this isn't going to be that big of a deal. Um, we, we can handle some wind. Uh, and it's kind of that lack of respect for just the, the importance um, and power and significance uh, of the natural world that I, I saw kind of uh, embedded throughout the arguments you were making in the book. Uh, so I thought that was was an interesting connection to hmm. what I was living through um, quite literally at the very same time that I was reading uh, this. I, I, I hope everything was okay for you and your family. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're a little bit inland, so we had some small roof damage, but nothing compared to what happened uh, to those people on the coast. Fortunately, Um, so you've organized this book chronol—I'm sorry—thematically as opposed to chronologically, and you take a look at different environmental um, aspects of actually. Yeah, yeah. It's it's,
1: uh, you know, so it is the chapters are organized thematically. There's a chapter on soil and trees and animals and what have you. Uh, But I wanted to very much also embed a chronological. structure into it as sort of a a secondary framework. So, so, you know, the, the earlier chapters tend to focus much more on the colonial period and when it culminates with the civil war uh, and emancipation. So, sorry, I interrupted you, Uh, but it's trying to do, I was trying to do both in terms of uh, structuring the book.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's really, really effective. Um, and so I thought we could just go through a couple of the, the topics that are covered and maybe you can give us a little bit of insight into what's going on here. Um, the first chapter, uh, is really, really interesting. And when I first cracked open the book and started reading, I thought, okay, I've heard this argument Mm. before, um, soil degradation. Every time I teach the first half of us history, I talk about tobacco and how it was really, really bad for the soil. I thought, okay, David, we've heard this before, right? Every freshman has heard this. Um, but you, you really do a lot more than just emphasize, okay, tobacco was bad for the soil. In fact, you, you make an argument that cotton was significantly worse for the the soil um, across uh, the U.S. South, and then you extend it even farther uh, and suggest that that degraded soil damaged ecosystems um, in myriad ways that perhaps mm-hmm. um, haven't really been emphasized uh, as much as tobacco degrading soil. So, uh, would you just explain a little bit um, what happened to to the rich productive soils of the South and what the consequences uh, of tobacco and cotton production were in terms of the soil?
1: So. One of the things I'm trying to do in the book that that's different than what people have done already on this question is that lots of agricultural historians have talked about uh, soil depletion, the, the leaching of minerals and nutrients from the soil, but also soil erosion, which is related, but 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 also a sort of different environmental phenomenon. You know, they've talked about that. And people have talked about that for generations.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, what I wanted to do, though, is to sort of Think about then what happens to all of that soil that is run off from the fields? Mm-hmm. What happens to the rivers that are, are bordering plantations? What happens then to the fish that are living in those rivers? What happens to the, you know, and sort of how do we think ecologically about some of these choices? Uh, so I was trying to go sort of beyond the sort of bounds of the plantation because you know when we think about how complex these ecosystems are they they mm-hmm. are fundamentally interconnected but the the bigger issue that i was trying to wrestle with in that that chapter is that enslavers from the very beginning started to really see this land not only as a source of great profit but but as land that could be used up and then replaced, that there was mm-hmm. always a, a frontier to expand into. That slavery from its very beginnings in, in the colonial period is built on this model that, that the land itself is not what's important. That's not where the wealth and power is. It's in the mm-hmm. people that are enslaved. That's where enslavers understood that their real wealth and power rested. And that the land was just a, a vehicle for, for, for doing that. And they knew that the kinds of agricultural cultivation that they were doing was going to destroy the soil. Mm -hmm. And they don't care. I mean, they simply say, look, the economics of this are such that I can farm this land, whether it's tobacco or cotton or, or other products, take from it what I can get from it. And then as soon as it's no longer profitable for me, I can buy new land further west Mm -hmm. cut down the trees and repeat the process yeah you know and there are some people who say look you could fertilize this soil there's always a handful of guys in virginia who are like oh we can we can you know um fix things we can we can Mm -hmm. make this work we can you know and they they think they have different kinds of schemes for how to crop rotation um importing guano from uh, peru And other planters look at them and they say, that's nuts. That doesn't make any sense. Like, (laughs) Mm -hmm. yes, you're doing this. It's costing you a phenomenal amount of money. I'm moving to Alabama where I can get a huge amount of land for next to nothing. Take my enslaved people there and repeat the process, you know, and when Alabama is worn out, I can go further west. And, you know, thinking about, you know, the big story of slavery in the American South, starting the colonial era, going all the way up to the Civil War. It's about the expansion of slavery westward. Mm-hmm. And part of the argument I'm making in, in both in that chapter and the rest of the book is that drive, that push that enslavers have to to expand the slavery frontier further west, you know, is driven by a particular environmental mind frame about, about how land should be owned and how it should be worked and how it should be disposed of you know so i talk in the book about a sort of leading edge of this slavery frontier and then a sort of trailing edge behind the the leaves you know uh, charles ball saw this this land that wasn't good for anything Mm -hmm. and there are tremendous consequences of this environmental framework above and beyond sort of what's happening on for individual planters thinking about Wars that the United States wages to acquire new land, whether it's wars against Native peoples, war against Mexico, that is driven in part by this insatiable demand by enslavers for for further land, further west. You know, if we think about Indian removal, mm-hmm. that sort of awful eugenism for for a, a genocide, you know, that is driven by this demand for for westward expansion. And we think about the domestic slave trade, you know, that in which a million enslaved people are sold from the upper South to the lower South. That is also in part driven by this environmental framework. Uh, Mm -hmm. So there are are big consequences for seeing the land in this particular way. Uh, And and it really does shape slavery as an institution and, and by consequence, you know, shapes the lives of millions of enslaved people.
0: Absolutely. How, how were the lives of enslaved people shaped by this environmental mindset, um, that white plantation owners had?
1: Um, well, in, in, in any number of ways, um, you know, so one of the, the phenomenon that, that I think we're all familiar with as historians of the American South is, you know, the, this growth of a domestic slave trade that separates husbands from wives brothers and sisters, parents and children, you know, that is driven in part by this, this expansionist model for how slavery needs to work. Um, if we think about sort of the labor that enslaved people are doing, one of the phenomenon you find across this enslaved frontier are gangs of enslaved people who are sent basically to clear cut land to create new plantations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a bit where Solomon Northup, um, in 12 years a slave, you know, he's describing being sent uh, up, I think it's the Red River in Louisiana to us, or where his uh, enslaver is establishing a new plantation. And he describes this beautiful forest and just how sort of Eden-like it is. And then he describes, we spent the next six months tearing the whole thing down,
2: mm-hmm.
1: a- a- and you know, mourning for for not only you know the, the forest that's lost, but also you know the the brutality that's embedded within that. Um, so there are there are real consequences for enslaved people. And when we think about you know ultimately the the causes of the Civil War, right? Mm-hmm. When we think about these debates over the expansion of slavery in the West, that is the sort of the dominant political you know, fights over that culminate in the Civil War. Those debates exist in part because enslavers insist that slavery needs to expand in order to survive.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and they talk about this not only in the lead up to the war, they talk about this in the ordinances of secession, that they see a need for expansion being driven by the environment as an as absolute necessity for them.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: that secession is the only way they can guarantee that's going to happen. Um, and so there are, you know, the, the, there are connections, I think, you know, between the, this environmental worldview that enslavers have and all, all everything else that's going on,
0: um, mm-hmm. well. So you, you have a couple of chapters where you look at what I'm going to call, uh, impediments, right? Uh, enslavers who want to come into a new place, um for them, a new place and established cotton plantations. Um, they see things like forests and swamps as these major impediments to that kind of economic development. Um, and they need to, to do something about it. Um, and, and you, you paint this really fantastic picture of, a, a South pre kind of plantation style mm. agriculture, uh, that is, is rich with, with pine forests, um, and, and important swamp ecosystems, um. What happens to to these forests and these swamps? You already um, mentioned deforestation a bit, but what yeah. happens to these really important ecosystems that are across the South um, as this frontier of of slavery expands? Um,
1: well, there there is a there, there's a couple of things that are going on. You know, one is is that enslaved people understand the environment in, in, in very particular ways, right? They understand ways in which they can use the landscape for their advantage. They understand, for instance, that forests are tremendous places to run away to if you need to. They're tremendous places to hunt if you need to supplement your enslaved diet and all enslaved people need to do that. If you need to gather or trap, you could do that. If you wanted to have religious services, you could go to the woods to do that. Um, if you want to plot a slave rebellion, you know, there, there's ways in which these wild spaces, if you will, were tremendous uh, venues for that. Mm-hmm. And, and if you want to become a, a maroon, that is to say, if you wanted to escape from slavery, not by fleeing to the north, but by fleeing into uh, wild, impenetrable in, in spaces, swamps are, are great places to do that. Mm-hmm. And we have maroon communities across the south most famously in the Great Dismal Swamp on the border of uh, Virginia and North Carolina. But there are swamps in in South Carolina. There's obviously swamps in Louisiana uh, and other places where African-Americans flee from slavery and sometimes live for generations in in swamps, which is an extraordinarily difficult life. There's a reason why people don't live in swamps, Um, but they, they recognize that that life in a swamp was preferable to a life in bondage. Um, And enslavers saw these same spaces as a fundamental threat to their authority. So so they saw them as resources. First, you could cut down the trees and do all kinds of things with that, whether that's firewood, building plantations, clearing land for cultivation, steamboats. Steamboats use up a phenomenal (laughs) amount of wood, right? Uh, And we think about sort of the importance of the steamboat for the Mississippi, you know, they are primarily burning wood for fuel. Mm-hmm. They are the dominant kind of engine they're using. They have sort of two kinds of, of steamboat engines. The one that becomes the dominant one because it's slightly faster is one that is just tremendously fuel hungry. Um, and, you know, enslaved people are cutting down most of the trees that are being fed onto these steamboats, which then is facilitating both the slave trade and the cotton Production. Um, So you know, enslavers see advantages to transforming the landscape. Advantages in Mm -hmm. terms of the economics. Advantages in terms of their ability to control their enslaved population. Uh, You know, there are efforts to transform swamps. Um, By the best example of this is there is a, a dismal swamp company that's established. Slightly before uh, the the American Revolution, founded by a number of prominent Virginians, including George Washington. And what they want to do is they want to take the swamp that they knew was a refuge for for Maroons and drain the swamp. So mm-hmm. Washington drain the swamp <laughs> means to be very different in the 18th century. Right, right. Man, today. that
2: has changed.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, but they... And what do they do? They, they sort of dig canals through the swamp. They try to, to literally transform it into uh, profitable land for them and land that they could similarly exploit. Um, you know, and, and thinking about other kinds of, of forests, uh, one of the areas that particularly interests me um, are the turpentine forests,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, which were. Very prevalent, especially in eastern North Carolina. There's sort of a band of, of, of trees, of pine trees that produce turpentine that used to stretch from North Carolina all the way into into Texas in sort of a crescent shape. And the way these were were cultivated, um, it's a little bit like cultivating maple syrup. But not Mm -hmm. really. Um, Enslaved people uh, would be sent into these turpentine forests, orchards to to extract the turpentine. They do that by cutting gashes into the tree, sort of a V shaped gash into the tree, which would then cause the tree to essentially bleed out the turpentine. And Mm -hmm. they would carve a bucket, a little cavity in the tree itself. So instead of like attaching a barrel or a bucket like you would for for maple syrup they're actually carving a cavity into the tree and they start doing this during the colonial era and for enslaved people are sent in to do this work it's tremendously difficult work uh they are uh working uh you know covered in basically in in raw turpentine which is Mm -hmm. not good for your skin it's not good for your breathing right um and there's sort of, sort of two gangs of people. There's one gang who are called uh, dippers who are going and, and collecting this raw turpentine to be processed. And another group that are called chippers, which have to go and refresh the gashes in the tree mm-hmm. uh, such that, you know, after a number of years, the gashes sort of go up in the tree. Uh, Frederick Law Olmsted famously described this as, as scarifying the tree. Um and one of the things that happened there is that they started doing this in the colonial era. When the turpentine demand for turpentine takes off uh, in the 1830s and 1840s, enslavers say, great, we can make a huge profit here. If mm-hmm. we, instead of just using one side of the tree, if we start to have cavities on three sides of the tree. And they do this knowing that that kind of intensive extraction is going to generate them a lot of profit, but it's also going to kill the tree. Right. And so within the course of a generation, you know, this entire industry basically self-destructs because – and, and the, the trees themselves, look once they die, they're not replaced by other turpentine trees. They're replaced by other kinds of pine trees that are, that are beautiful but but worthless for turpentine production. Right. Um, you know, and I think that sort of speaks – you know, that example of, of the sort of brutality, the labor on the one hand that enslaved people are doing and extracting this from this forest – Mm-hmm. but you know the the choices there that enslavers are making, you know to to value profit over sustainability, I think is yeah. it's quite powerful because I'm just as thinking if, as
0: you were, I'm sorry go yeah, ahead. It's,
1: it, well, it's not as if they you know in all of these cases, they know what they're doing, right They know what the consequences will be, and they don't care.
0: yeah, uh, yeah which, it seems like sustainability you know, never that. enters into their mindset, right? It's just like let's just go and get as much as we can and move on. Well, and you know, I think that reflects,
1: you know, um, obviously the, the thing that comes to my mind is, is, is more recent debates about sustainability and the choices that we all have been making for the past century. Mm-hmm. Um, well, where we know going and driving our car is going to destroy the planet, but we you know, do it anyway. Right? Um, yeah. So, so I think there's a real ethos that's embedded within slavery as a system. that that leads to certain kinds
0: of environmental action. Absolutely. Um, So we talked a little bit about forests and swamps and how they Mm -hmm. proved to be major obstacles for enslavers for a number of reasons, both in terms of their their plantation kind of dreams uh, and visions, but also as places where, Um, as you suggested, maroon communities uh, could be established, so uh, a threat to their authority and something that needs to be removed. Uh, But rivers also formed uh, a really interesting natural resource in the South. Uh, You described them uh, as both the arteries for slavery's expansion, right? This, This is how enslavers are able to kind of move across the landscape and get their product um, to and from market, but at the same time, uh, rivers, as as we have found out uh, throughout history, right, uh, are incredibly unpredictable, hard to control, um, subject to flooding and the like. Um, so, I was hoping you could explain this kind of dual understanding of waterways in the South as both, um, and this seems to kind of be a theme in the book too. These mm-hmm. are these are things that are. Um, great for opportunity in terms of expanding slavery, uh, but also present some serious problems uh, in terms of kind of management.
1: Right. So, I mean, I think that the great example of this, of course, is the Mississippi, because it's you know, the, big, the big example. Um, you know, the, and, and uh, controlling the Mississippi becomes one of the major objectives of European colonizers and and later by, by, by Americans. Um, You know, and the the benefits the Mississippi gives, obviously it's a a great river for, for navigating up and down, especially when Mm -hmm. you have a steamboat. It's a great source of, of nutrients that, that the flooding of the Mississippi is what makes the Mississippi Valley so fertile, what's makes it so desirable as real estate for, enslavers when we think about where the you know the the enormous plantations are in the american south where the real wealth and power of enslavers were you know mississippi is sort of uh, the epicenter of that at least in the the 19th century and enslavers you know recognize that okay we we want to benefit from the, the the centuries of flooding that the mississippi has done but we do not want flooding to happen while we're growing our cotton or sugar or what have you, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so they start to build levees, and this is, happens very early on in, in French settlement um, in Louisiana, it's picked up then uh, by the Spanish and then obviously by, by the United States after Beth the Louisiana purchase and building this levee system really becomes tied to gro- the growth of slavery within the Mississippi Valley that enslaved people are the ones who are building the levees. They are the, you know, the ones who are carrying the burden when um, levees fail and they need to be repaired, mm-hmm. which is extraordinarily dangerous. And as you describe
0: it. constant, it seems like repairing and monitoring these levees requires constant attention and focus.
1: Well, well enslavers describe you know, the vigilance you need in watching your levees with the same kind of language they use for the vigilance, you need to prepare for a slave revolt. You need to constantly mm-hmm. be aware of what's happening because you know that the consequence of the levees failing are tremendous. Just like in a slave revolt, the consequences are, could be uh, enormous. And one of the things that happens with the Mississippi is that as these levee systems get built and they get, Sort of, they expand up the river, but then they also get larger and larger and larger, is that when the river no longer can spill its banks, the sediment in the river ends up falling down to the base of the, the bed of the river,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which means that the higher the levees get, the higher the bed of the river between the levees gets, which means that by the time you get to the Civil War, the river is significantly above the level of the fields that surrounds it. Mm-hmm. You know, what could and, possibly go wrong? Oh, exactly. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and when we think about, you know, what ha- then does happen when levees break and levees are, are inherently, you know, as, as we know, obviously from Hurricane Katrina and other more recent events, you know, the, when levees break, it, it has, uh, because given the topography of Louisiana in particular mm-hmm. it's it's devastating and often you know enslaved people are are paying the heaviest cost when it does flood so so there's an example, one example I give in the book is of the bell Chase plantation this was a sugar plantation uh, near New Orleans levees broke uh, in the early 1850s uh, the floodwaters would have inundated slave cabins. Slave cabins tend to be on low ground. The big house where the enslaver lives, of course, is usually on the highest point of land. So mm-hmm. he's usually okay, but enslaved quarters are inundated. Uh, so whatever property enslaved people keep in their, in their cabins, that's all gone. Their, their homes are destroyed. You know, the enslaver who, who owned Belle Chase Plantation said, look, I've lost my sugar crop. What do I do about that? Well, I need to sell off much of my property to make ends meet, and that property is sold off for enslaved people. So he has a, mm-hmm. an enormous auction um, in New Orleans where he sells and he lists the names of all the people he's selling um, and their ages, and you can sort of reconstruct where their families are and and... You know, you can sort of think through what are the consequences that led to this moment, led to these families being sold and broken up, you know, and they're Mm -hmm. embedded within these environmental choices, some of which were quite recent. uh, And some of which, you know, date back decades, if not centuries. Mm -hmm. And we don't know what happened to these enslaved people when this plantation community gets broken up. Um, But we do know what happens to the guy who owned Belchase Plantation. He was a guy by the name of Judah P. Benjamin. He ends up getting elected to the Senate from Louisiana shortly thereafter and then goes on to be secretary of everything at some point for Jefferson Davis in the Confederacy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and so he's able to sort of walk away from this environmental destruction more or less on the same footing as beforehand. But the people who he enslaved have to have these, you know, series of catastrophes as a consequence. They have to try to fix the levy, they have Mm -hmm. to they lose their property, and they lose their families and their homes. Absolutely. Um, So kind
0: of getting back to that theme that 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 you started thinking through when you were originally kind of thinking through this idea of the book, this kind of um, environmentalism with this kind of racism that is embedded in American society. And here is a perfect example of, of how, how those two are so firmly interconnected. Um, another thing that I was thinking through, again, I was reading this book in October when I had no power um, because we were just hit with a hurricane in Southwest Florida. Um, and so I was just drawing all of these connections um, between what, what we were experiencing um, and what I was reading in the book. Um, and, and you made an argument uh, where you said that slavery did not cause an 18th and 19th century version of climate change, uh, but it did, you say, exacerbate the effects that severe weather had on the ecosystem and on the human geography. And as I think you would Probably agree uh, on the lives, or perhaps disproportionately on the lives of enslaved people. Um, so, would you kind of walk us through what you mean by that statement? What was going on sure. here in the 18th and 19th century?
1: Well, so the American South uh, then is now um, suffered from hurricanes. We have more mm-hmm. of them now for obvious reasons, but you know then they were equally destructive, but sometimes in some ways more destructive. In part because there's no forecasting, there's no way to right. they know they're coming. Um, and, and what I found was that, you know, enslaved people suffered the worst effects when hurricanes hit. Right, that mm-hmm. when they hit the South Carolina Low Country, when they hit the Gulf Coast, you know, the the accounts we have are, are very often that, that the, the houses of enslavers usually survive those storms intact, mm-hmm. but the slave quarters don't. Right, that 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 the you know. Uh, the fragility of those structures that, and the people living in them um, are, are are very vulnerable, and slavery is flourishing in locations that are very hurricane-prone. Right. So if we think about, you know, where is the sort of demographic hearts of of American slavery during the colonial era? It's it's very much like in the Low Country of South Carolina, right? Which, when the hurricanes hit, multiple hurricanes hit enslaved people are paying you know some of the heaviest you know literally they're losing their lives in these hurricanes Mm -hmm. If you of what a rice plantation looks like that's not where you want to be in a hurricane these these are sites that are already you know adjacent to a river they are in many cases you know uh, flooded land already before the hurricane hits um you know and so we have many accounts of, of enslaved people losing their lives in the, in those cases there's a really well documented hurricane that hits the the gulf coast um in the 1850s um where it's called the last island hurricane because it one of the places it hits the hurricane hits first is a as is an island called last island which was a an island off the the coast of, of louisiana that was basically a resort island for planters Mm -hmm. Uh, So they had milder weather than than the mainland. So planters would go there in the summer. And of course, they would take their enslaved servants and what have you with them. So there was a sort of a hotel and some cottages and lots of slave quarters. Then the hurricane hits and basically splits the entire island in half. Mm -hmm. You know, who loses their lives? It's... You know, lots of people lose their lives, but, you know, the enslaved people on the island have, are hit disproportionately. When the hurricane then hits the mainland, we have an account by an enslaved person of what that's like from his perspective. He describes seeing slave quarters being lifted hundreds of feet in the air and then smashing to the ground during a hurricane. And, and, you know, I've lived through a couple of hurricanes. I, I, I know you have. Um they are very scary when you when they know they're coming. When mm-hmm. you don't know they're coming, you know uh, that must be, yeah, be even orders of magnitude more 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 intimidating to have that kind of destruction wrought on you uh, when you're when you're not prepared for it.
0: Absolutely. I was thinking through as I was reading that really compelling description uh, of, of, of what this hurricane looked like from the perspective of enslaved people. Um, just how fortunate we are. Right, I have hurricane proof windows and we know it's coming. They're predicting the storm surge. Um, and yeah, when all this stuff just appears, um, maybe not out of nowhere, but you certainly don't have the, the advanced warning systems that we have today. So maybe a day um, or two where you're starting to think something doesn't feel right. Um, but just the level of destruction that would be thrust upon people relatively quickly, I couldn't even imagine um, what that felt like or what that actually was like. As you suggested, hurricanes are terrifying enough, um, and we know so much about them now. Um, so, yeah, I was, I was really, really drawn in by that description. Um, so you already uh, talked about this a little bit, but in the last chapter, um, you argued that secession was in part a consequence of the environmental destruction that occurred across the South in the 19th century. Um, so, you know, whenever I'm teaching, um, the buildup to the civil war, I often emphasize expansion, but also the political context around that expansion. They need senators. They've got to protect the Senate and the like. Um, but, but you argue that, that there's something else involved, um, that, that it's the spread of slavery because they need fresh land because they have destroyed what's, what's left behind. Um, and so I'm not going to ask you to just rehash that, but one question I, I had, and you know, Ed Ayers just wrote a book a couple of years ago called Southern Journey, um, and he says, you know, the South is really peculiar because it's one of the only places he can he can think of where the elite kind of pick up and move every generation, uh, which is just kind of bizarre. So I don't know if you know the answer to this, and I apologize if this is just a curveball, but was there ever any thought to like, hey, this this is an unsustainable model? Um, at some point, we're going to run out of space, um, and we should we should rethink um, this this kind of approach.
1: You know that there are occasionally um, planters who, who, who talk about that, who say, "Look, maybe maybe what we should do is we should we should re-jig our, our understanding with the landscape. That we should embrace crop rotation. We should get fertilizer. We should, you know." And you know, you, if you read agricultural journals, there are these planter journals that become very popular in the eighteen thirties and eighteen forties, and, and they give they have conventions where they get together to talk about different ways of of maintaining the soil. What's striking about those is the extent to which people read those journals and then don't do any of it. Yeah. Right. Like the, I mean, they sort of strike me as sort of like fitness magazines, people get them and they say, (laughs) Oh, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm going to go have a cheeseburger anyway. Um, And, and, you know, I think part of it is, is, they sort of recognize that, that, sure i could do these things but it doesn't make it didn't doesn't make financial sense for them to do it so the 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 handful of you know the edmund ruffins or 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 what have you who are articulating um you know a vision of a different kind of 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 landscape usage uh Mm -hmm. are often sort of shouting into the wind because 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 most most of their neighbors are not paying attention to it and you know um
0: and i guess if the most valuable commodity uh is is human beings right mm-hmm. you can transport them so the 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 kind of idea exactly of what well, we yeah. need to make this productive in perpetuity is just not necessarily and, there
1: you know and if you think about the the land the, the mentality of, of 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 the southern political elite, you know they are thinking in the 1850s about expansion beyond what we now think you know so they're they're thinking about Cuba. They're thinking about Mm -hmm. Mexico. They're thinking about other parts of Latin America. They are, they have an expansionist view. Not only, you know, are they going to have slavery in the Mexican session? Not only are they going to try to, 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 you know, Kansas and Nebraska, but they're, they're, they're thinking southward, um, Mm -hmm. about, about where they could, what's the next frontier for them? Um, you know, and some of them are actually doing things about it, uh, you know, uh, filibusters and what have you, um, you know, and so that last chapter is in part trying to sort of explain how how this lands this environmental worldview leads to uh, secession and, and civil war. But the other sort of half of that chapter is trying to get at uh, how the environment shapes how we should think about emancipation
2: right? mm-hmm.
1: that, you know, the the. the past couple of of generations there's been this real debate i think as as most listeners know about how we're supposed to understand emancipation does is emancipation a sort of top-down lincoln emancipation proclamation model or is it a bottom-up enslaved people liberating themselves by running away and and Mm -hmm. what have you um and i guess more recently people have said well actually we need to add the role of the army and 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 the ways in which geography and the specificity of that shapes uh, emancipation uh and what i wanted to do in that chapter is say well okay all those things all those things are important conversations to have but we should also think about how landscape factors into that and, and how the knowledge that enslaved people had about the environment helped them both to escape from bondage uh, but also how that helped them to be uh, to aid the Union war effort in defeating the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the enslaved people know how to navigate through swamps. They know how to navigate through southern forests. They know how to forage, and they know what crops, you know, what, what wild foods are edible, and they know to avoid poison ivy, right? Like, there's all those things that they know how to do that shape the way that emancipation unfolded. And sure. and there's some very specific environmental things that happened during the war that also shaped the nature of emancipation. So there's a drought at a certain point. Rivers are low. And so you can think about, you know, rivers that are usually unfordable all of a sudden become, you know, easy to to, to, to walk across. And there's a famous image of enslaved people crossing the Rappahannock, um, you know, which is usually not something you can do very easily, but... Uh, In the the one particular summer, the river is very low and they're able to walk across. For those people, their freedom was predicated upon a particular climate and or weather circumstances, Mm -hmm. I should say. Um, Absolutely. So I was trying to sort of, you know, try to explore this longstanding debate about how emancipation works, but adding in the environment and the environmental knowledge that enslaved people had into that
0: conversation. You also make an argument about the way in which emancipation prompted uh, white and black Southerners to really reevaluate their relationship to the land. Uh, I, I'd i love it if you could maybe explain to us what that reevaluation looked like and what some of the consequences of that reevaluation were.
1: Sure. So one of the things that, that the book does at the very end, sort of foreshadowing what's to come over the, the next century, is that that the end of slavery... And the rise of sharecropping and other kinds of of free, but semi-free labor in some ways, (laughs) um, you know, leads to very different kinds of choices about the landscape. You know, one of the things you see with with sharecropping is, is that... Uh, formerly enslaved people are now farming the same land over and over and over again. The, the, the sort of mobility that was embedded within slavery, the, this constant expansion of, of finding new land, that, that gets replaced by right. relatively static conceptions of land ownership. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and that former enslavers really become landlords much more so than they were uh, prior to the Civil War. And right. manifested in different kinds of, of of land usage. I mean, one of the ways in which uh, that's evident is that before the Civil War, uh, under slavery, the South is the region of the country that uses the least amount of fertilizer. Fertilizer was widespread uh, in the mid nineteenth century in Europe, in mm-hmm. American North, but uh, in the Antebellum South, it was very rarely used. Uh, simply because there was always ways in which you could acquire new land and, and transform it into uh, land for cultivation. Um, right. One of the things you start to see is as the South becomes the region that uses the most fertilizer, uh, starting in the really in the 1870s and 1880s, uh, and they sort of see fertilizer as a way of rejuvenating the soil that had been um, ruined in many ways by 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 both erosion, um, and depletion, uh, from repeatedly cultivating the same crop over and over again. So Mm -hmm. their dependence on, on fertilizer really signifies a very different kind of relationship to the land than what had existed, um, before the civil war. Absolutely.
0: And what about for black Southerners? Um, how is their understanding of the land, um, changing as a result of emancipation?
1: Oh, well, one of the things that, that happens, and there's, there's a, there's a conversation that happens during the war itself and in the immediate aftermath about what claims formerly enslaved people have to the land. Um, you know, what are the, what is owed to African Americans for, in some cases, centuries of unpaid labor, unpaid mm-hmm. work, transforming the landscape. Do they have? Does that lead to some kind of claim to a particular land?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, there's a very famous meeting that that Sherman has with formerly enslaved people uh, and their representatives, and at, at the end of the March to the Sea, where they tell him, "Look, we what we want more than anything else is is the claim to the lands that we have worked uh, for generations that we, we feel that 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 our um, labor entitles us to that." And obviously, those kinds mm-hmm. of of land. Uh, Redistribution doesn't happen, at least not on any uh, significant scale. Right, um, but there is a sense among African Americans that that the you know the land is going to be fertile in a way that it hasn't been. There's a speech that I, I quote in the book by by Frederick Douglass, where he's talking about. And this is well after emancipation. He's talking about about how this land that had been punished through slavery now has a chance to to be productive for free workers. And that that leads to a, a reinvention of what the land is and how African Americans understand their relationship to it. Absolutely. Uh,
0: okay. So uh, bear with me on this one, but um, I don't want to present you as a presentist uh, mm. in the historical profession. I know there was quite a bit of controversy about that idea uh, a few months ago, but honestly, it's impossible to avoid connections between the arguments you make in your book and the climate crisis today. Um, so do you see any lessons to be learned uh, or connections between then and now? Um from from your work on this book, um, what's 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 the big takeaway for all of us? Yeah, do
1: you Yeah, so I mean, the 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 label of, of presentist is 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 a, I guess a slur in the historical profession, or at least among some quarters. <laughs> sure, and, and, and uh, you know, in my mind, everything I've ever written historically, any question that interests me, it, it you know, they interest me in part because they interest me. About events in the past, but they also are questions that interest me because they interest me in the present. Yeah, um, I just suggested it,
0: with Hurricane Katrina, kind yeah, of prompting exactly. your thinking along these lines. Well,
1: I mean, everything everything that I've written in my career has been in some ways shaped by the world in which I am living, and and, and I, you know, when we think about how scholarship evolves over time, um, you know. One tenth of it, I think, is, is scholars responding to other scholars and the work happening in, internally within the profession. But the other nine tenths about it is about how the world around us is changing. And um, you know, I'm never consciously doing that, saying the glue. I'm looking right about Black Lives Matter and about the climate crisis. Right. Uh, but the questions I gravitate towards are the questions. Uh, that uh, interest me, you know that that, that we're, we're thinking about today and we're wrestling with today. And I think history to be relevant needs to address questions that that people are wrestling with to, right now. And I think the fact yeah. that that we as a, a species are are wrestling with such tremendous environmental challenges, and that we as Americans are, you know, rest continuing to wrestle. With the the legacies of, of slavery and and segregation and, and centuries of of profound uh, racism and white supremacy, I think we're we're mm-hmm. all you know to not address those things seems to be to be uh, you know failing what the job of the historian is. I mean, I think we're we're supposed to be truthful to the past. We're supposed to be you know to listen to our sources and and to let them you know dictate. To some degree, you know the, the the evidence and the interpretations that we put forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if what we write, what we research doesn't have any resonance with the present, uh, then you know, why bother? Um, yeah, what are we I doing mean, other other than just sort of, you know writing things for our own amusement? Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think the scholarship needs to speak to the present moment and provide some context. You know, I think yeah. part of the argument i'm making in the book more implicitly than explicitly although explicitly in some places that the scars on the land to use the title you know these are scars that were inflicted during um two centuries of of slavery but that you know scars take a long time to heal if mm-hmm. they ever heal at all and and if you understand the, the, this history it will help to explain you know, the, the, at least in a small part, some of the challenges we continue to face. Um, you know, if we look at the places in the South right now that are struggling the most with environmental challenges, whether that's rising sea levels or increased or mm-hmm. um, hurricanes, what have you, you know, and you sort of map onto that the, the, the history of, of, of racism and slavery,
2: you I mean, know, mm-hmm. those
1: things are. Connected, um, you know, if we look at at Louisiana and look at where Cancer Alley is, and, and the ways in which you know it, chemical pollutions of a variety of kinds have led to, you know, uh, whole communities suffering tremendously in the present, you know, those are connected to the history of petroleum development in the 20th century, but it's also connected to the development of sugar cultivation in the, in the 18th and 19th centuries. And, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, all, all of which is to say, I'm, you know, I'm constantly thinking about the present when I'm writing about the past because I'm living in the present and I'm writing (laughs) for people in the present. You know, I'm not people in the past are dead. I can't write for them. I can write about them, but I'm writing for the present and for the future, hopefully. Um, you know and that involves understanding where we are uh now and what challenges we face
0: yeah absolutely and i think one of the things that just will stay with me forever after having read this book. It's just the mindset. Um, I think oftentimes when we think of agriculture, uh, it seems like it's a little more natural, right? And and you think that people are more in tune with the natural world. Um, but in many ways, what, what you're arguing is like, yeah, they know um, what they're doing is really, really problematic, but they just don't care. They think they can, can always move to the next place. Um, and as we're finding out now, we don't really have another place to move to uh, that's viable as of yeah, yet. So maybe yeah. we should really unless do more to make the we're place we're on a more sustainable. To Mars,
1: right? This is this is <laughs> the planet we've got, and uh, right,
0: right. And,
1: and we've not done a great job of taking care of it, um, and we've not done a great job of dealing with you know the legacies of. of centuries of, of racism, and 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 I think we need to, to deal with those and, and number many other problems uh, Absolutely. we want to survive.
0: Absolutely. Uh, well, the book is Scars on the Land, an Environmental History of Slavery in the American South, and it is available now through Oxford University Press. David Silknett, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. And thank you for listening to new books in the American South.